It is good to be with you. It is good to see you, and we're very appreciative for all who are assembled with us in the parking lot, in the fellowship that we share as we work together in the cause of our King and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll open your Bibles to Genesis in just a moment. We're going to you know, read just a couple verses from there. And I want you to have your Bibles ready, you know, because I want you to be following along with your Bibles. I will not be using a PowerPoint, because I want you to look at the text that I've selected this evening. So I begin to simply make a statement. Sin is the violation of God's law. And we understand that, and we know that. But sin is so much more than simply breaking an ordinance. It is so much more than simply violating a regulation. And last Sunday, we, we studied that concept, that sin is also missing the mark, and that it is failing to aim effectively for the glory of God. And so you think about that idea. Each time we sin, or each time we have sinned, we have aimed for the wrong thing, no matter what it is. When we sin, we're aiming for the wrong thing. And it may be the reason is because our minds, at the moment, were not on heavenly things. Or perhaps it may have been our eyes were looking not to Jesus. Or it could even be the fact that our hearts were just simply distracted by things around us. There's a number of different reasons that sometimes will trigger the temptation, and if the temptation is not resisted, sin is conceived and sin brings forth death. And so we know and understand that sin is an affront against God. It is selfish, it is selfish disobedience, and it is a selfish disobedience of your father. Your Father above. Now as believers, as followers of Jesus, we know that the bottom line is that sin is against God. We understand that concept. Ultimately, sin is against God. And Jesus brings that out, for example, in his parable in Luke chapter 15. We're talking about the, the two brothers, and particularly the prodigal son... And when he returns to his father, he confesses, I've sinned, I've sinned against you and against God. And so the prodigal son understood that ultimately sin is against God. But do we take to heart how our personal sins, tonight's lesson is really a lesson of personal reflection. It's all about you simply listening to what God says, what God's revealed, and just looking in the mirror. Each and every one of us, whether we're in the auditorium, or whether we're in our cars, or whether we're streaming online, I want you to look at these texts and see what God says about answering this question. And the idea, you know, do we see our personal sins and how they impact Him? Do we see that as often as we should? Do we understand that as well as we should? How our personal sin 
personally. I think it's easier for us to see that our sins can hurt our family. I think we, we can relate to that more easily. And we can see perhaps also how our sins affect or impact personally our brethren or friends or even our community. We can see how it, our sins, our transgressions, our shortcomings, our mistakes against God... How they can affect other people. Why? Well, because that's here and now. You know, that's visible to us. And the flip side of that is we have been infected personally but other people's sins. So we can relate to that. We can relate to how our sins, our personal sins, affect other people personally. Whether it's directly or indirectly, we, we, we relate to that. There's a connection there. But with God, with God who is above, with God who is light, with God who is separate from all sin and evil, it's more difficult for us to see the impact. And I think there is sometimes somewhat of a disconnect. Well, we know we sinned against, our sin is against God, but I think we, there's a disconnect. We do not see the connection of how our personal sin affects our Father personally. Each and every time. And that each and every person's sins affects God personally. You know, it's not just some, okay, you know, sin out there and God's against it, but, you know, you know, he's so far removed from us that you know, he's, he's really not affected by it. Well, I believe the scriptures say otherwise, quite clearly. And we begin with Genesis because we have Genesis chapter 6. To start opening the pages of God's heart to us. And you know the occasion. It is the occasion where the sin of the world has multiplied and metastasized so much that God says in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, He reveals to us through the writings of Moses, and He says this, verse 5, You know it, the Lord saw, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that Every intent of the thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. That's what God saw. And, that's what it's, and listen to what it says about God now. Verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved. God our Father was grieved. In his heart. Does sin impact God? You better believe it does. And here you have, here you have sin grieving the creator. Now you and I can imagine perhaps a great artist or a, a great architect or an engineer. If men of great talent and skill and knowledge. We can understand how they would be really upset, maybe even 
angered if another person marred, destroyed, messed up their great work and desecrated their great achievement. We can understand that. We can relate to that. But how much more God? How much more our Creator who brought man into being in perfect goodness, perfect goodness, and perfect soundness. That's what God did in the beginning. When he created Adam and Eve, he had perfect goodness and perfect soundness. The greatest architect, the greatest engineer, the greatest artist, the greatest potter, no matter what imagery you use, no one surpasses to what God did. And we're told in Genesis 6 that God said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I made you. You're just grief to me in my heart. Sin causes emotional pain to our God. Not just the sin out there, but the sin of every single person who has lived or ever lived. Sin hurts. It hurts God. And what a contrast when you think about that from the moment and the day when God reviewed all his labors. You go back to Genesis 1 there, and you look at the very last verse, and it goes on into chapter 2, as God sees all that he made, and he says, and behold, it was very good. God stepped back and he looks at it all, an amazing universe that can sustain and, and uh, even life on one small planet in this vast system. And he looks at all of that. He said, it was very good. In chapter 2, and he said, you know, when it was completed, he says, then he rested. He rested from his labors. And what a contrast chapter 6 is. When he looks, when he sees... His creation, his work, he sees this, and he's sad, and he's sorry, and he's grieved in his heart. I would suggest to you that Jehovah's sadness here, and Jehovah's grief shows us how much he really does care. He wouldn't be grieved. If he didn't care. That's how much he cares for you and me. Every time we sin. It, it tells us how much he really does care about what's happening. It tells us how much he really does care about what's going on in the world. And not just in the world, but even in your own life. God cares. 
And so we need to understand and see the impact, not just of the world sins and the mass pain that that must be, but also we need to see the personal nature of it as well. Sin grieves God. My sin, your sin, everybody's own sin. No matter what it is, big or small in your mind. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts your father. Now turn over to Numbers. Numbers chapter 20. As we move in our study, in our examination of this thought, to, to Moses. And you perhaps, knowing the text, you know, know exactly where we're going. As it is the occasion when Moses sinned. And he sinned against God, along with his brother. And so you read there in chapter 20, down in verse 10, it's, you know, it's the occasion when again, it's not the first time, but the second time they're complaining about not having enough water you know, to sustain the nation that's in the wilderness. And so they complain against Moses and Aaron about it. And so God tells you know, Moses what to do. And so in verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said, and he said, and they and he says, he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregate and the congregation and their beasts drank. But, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. I think all of us have a bit of understanding with Moses. I think we can somewhat kind of be compassionate with Moses. Because we are not far into the history of the nation of Israel, but we're far enough into the history that we know that the Israelites in general were just selfishly disobedient children. They're very immature children who were constantly disobeying God. And they, time and time again, would demonstrate and manifest such, such a, a small faith, a little faith, that we read about Jesus rebuking, at times, his followers. And so to find yourself in the shoes of Moses in this moment, I think we can understand the stress of the burden of dealing with these people. And how this stress and this burden of dealing with them has reached a breaking point. We've all broken, haven't we? You know, stress has gotten to us one way or another when we kind of lost it a bit. You know, so we can, we can relate to Moses. And here he's reached a breaking, breaking point. And so we understand Moses. But that doesn't change the facts, does it? Just because we can see how that could have happened to me as well. 
doesn't change the fact that what Moses did, and what Moses said, was wrong. He sinned. He missed the mark. He took his eyes and focused on the wrong thing in the moment. But I what I want you to just look at very briefly here is to take note of how personal God took it. Look again at our verse. God took this personally. As you read there in verse 12, when God is speaking to Moses and Aaron, he says, because you have not believed me. You didn't believe me, Moses, God said to him. God is speaking to Moses. This is not, you know, in some vision through a messenger of God. This is God speaking to Moses. And God, God says to Moses directly, you did not believe me, Moses. And nor did you treat me wholly. Moses failed in this moment. He failed to sanctify Jehovah. He failed to hallow, to show God's holiness in what he did and what he said. He missed the mark. As men do from time to time. But another way of saying this, when God says, you did not believe me and you did not treat me as holy, is to simply say, Moses treated God unholy. He treated God unholy. And God took it personally. How do we react? How do we feel when someone else mistreats us? Do we take it personally? Especially if that person is someone that you have a relationship with on some level. And they mistreat you. You know, whether it's on a family level, or whether it's on a brotherhood level, or whether it's on a friend it doesn't matter. There's a relationship there, and when there's mistreatment, it hurts. And, you know, and people might say, well, I, don't, you know, I didn't mean it personally. Well, you know, that's a bunch of hogwash. It hurts. How did God take it? When Moses did not treat him holy. When Moses, in that moment, showed unbelief. Now Moses was a strong man of faith. And we don't need to you know, simply paint a you know, distorted picture. But he had, in this moment, he fell short of God's glory. And it was painful to God. And God took it personally. Let's go a little farther into the history of the Old Testament. Look over in 1 Samuel chapter 8 now. And so in chronological order here, we come to the time period of the closing uh, uh, period of the judges as, as we're about to go into the period of the kings. You know, and, and we say that, well, that's you know, you know, the transition. You know, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? 
And God, God's, God worked through this, and He still is accomplishing His purpose, His will, and ultimately Christ will come through all the right lineages that God promises that He will come from. But as you know the story, as a student of God's Word, we look here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, in verse 5, when you've got the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, have gathered together at Ramah before Samuel, the last judge. And they say to Samuel, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. That's not good. So, so things were not in a good place. But then they go on to say, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You know the story. And Samuel's upset by this. You know, is, uh, Samuel understands the magnitude of what they are asking and the magnitude of what is transpiring here. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel. And he says to him in verse 7, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. So God says, now, now go ahead and listen to them. But note what he says. And so we understand things are going to change, and God's going to work through this change, and he's going to accomplish his purpose as will. But note what he says. You, know, you go ahead and listen to the people. For they have not rejected you, they rejected me. They rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt. Even to this day. And that they have forsaken me. And served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now think about this. With a mighty deliverance, Jehovah God brought the nation, not just 70 people that ended up in Egypt, brought this nation of people. He brought them out with a mighty hand out of Egyptian slavery, bondage. And he cared for them and he protected them throughout those years in the wilderness. Forty Right? And you continue to study and read, and you see God keeps his promise, and God defeats their enemies, and God gives them this rich land to dwell in. They didn't have to build houses, they didn't have to plant vineyards, everything was there. Talking about an inheritance. It was given to them on a silver platter. That's what God did for them. And for centuries, through the period of the judges, he had repeatedly, again and again, delivered them from oppressors. Showing his faithfulness, showing his constancy. That's what God had been doing. And so, when you come to this occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and you have Israel requests. Israel requests for earthly kings to execute justice. And what it was, God said, it is just another way that they 
are rejecting me in my way. It's just another way. My way is not good, good enough for them. It happens today still. People not listening to God, not wanting God's way, and wanting to do it a different way. And so that's what's going on here. They're rejecting God, and God took it personally. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. You may feel that way, but it's not you. It's me. Here you have God, who has been a trustworthy, benevolent monarch. You can't get a better king. You can't get a better ruler than Jehovah. And these children of Israel say, hey, well, we want, we want kings, earthly kings, to execute justice among us now. They rejected me from being their king. Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever been rejected by someone in spite of all the kindnesses that you have shown them, in spite of all the energy and time maybe you have spent in that relationship, and then to be just casually rejected. Most of us have, on one level or another, have felt the pain, the sting of rejection. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable at all. And that's what sin is. Sin is another way where we reject God. And it hurts Him every time we do it. In Romans 6, verse 16, we're told that we are servants or slaves or subjects of the one we obey. And if we obey sin... If we are by sin, then we are slaves of them. And that's our master. That's our key. That becomes our key. And when we choose that, when we choose sin, in spite of what God has said, in spite of what God has told us, in spite of what God has done for us, when we choose sin, in that moment, in that moment, we are rejecting God's kingship. And so... Not that you're rejecting the preacher or rejecting the elder or rejecting the deacon or rejecting your brother who's trying to help you along the way. That's not who you rejected. When you and I sin, ultimately we're rejecting God as our king. In spite of all what he's done. That he so loved the world that he even sacrificed his own Second Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's look at one of those kings. Well, second chapter 12 is the story of King David. One of the best kings yeah, among all the kings of Israel. And one to whom all the other kings will be compared to. But as you know, the story of David... You know, he gets himself entangled 
in the affairs that are connected with Bathsheba. And so, Nathan is sent to David to prick his heart, convict him of the sin that he has the sins, I should say, he has committed. And he is. David had a heart, in spite of the times that he fell short of God's glory, he had a heart that listened. A heart that could be humbled. A heart that could turn in penitence. But note one of the things that God says to David through the prophet Nathan. There in chapter 12, in verse 9, verse 10, and he says... Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. What a description of the man after God's own heart. For God says, what you have done with these sins that you've committed, he says, you have despised me. He says, why have you despised the word Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have despised me. You know, David was a strong man of faith. But even the strongest can and do fall short of the glory of God. And on this occasion, David did it in a big way. And he missed the mark, you know, by long way off. What's interesting is this word despise, that's a strong word. And it's a good word in our English language to try to you know, translate the idea that is trying to be communicated here by God to his son David about the sins that he's committed. And it's a word that carries with it the idea of disdaining or even scorning someone. And so when God said here in Hebrew, you have despised me. He's saying, you have disdained me. You are scorning me. And basically, God says, you have treated me, of all people, the God who anointed you to be the anointed one of God. And one whom God, God had blessed immensely and would have even blessed him even more if he'd only asked. But sin, sin, messed up David's life. He says, you have treated me with contempt. God took it personal. Now, David repented. And David was forgiven because that's the kind of father we have. A forgiving, compassionate, merciful, gracious father. Who is hurt, who suffers pain every time one of us sins. You know, how would we feel? 
How would we feel if someone whom we loved, someone that we have upheld in love, turned around and scorned us? How would we feel about that? And there are people who have experienced that. They, whose lives have been such and have unfolded, they experience the scorn of someone treating them like they've been treated God. With such disrespect. So yes, our sins do impact our Father. It impacts Him greatly. And we need to be reminded of that. And we know our sin is against God, but do we feel it as much as we should? Probably not. Probably not. In Acts 5, jumping to the New Testament, Acts 5, you have the occasion of Ananias and Sapphira. And, you, and you're familiar with that story. They sold land, and when they brought it to the apostles, lied about you know, the amount, what they were giving. And what we are told here in verse 4, as Peter speaks first to Ananias, Peter says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men. But to God. When a person lies to you, when a person lies to you, does it make you angry? Does it upset you? That you've been lied to it on one level or another? You know, lies take a lot of different shapes and colors and sizes. <laughs> but when you've been lied to, make you angry. And Peter tells his brother here in Christ, and an Isaac Christian, tells his brother in Christ, says, you didn't lie to me. You didn't lie to me, Ananias. You have just lied to God Almighty. The God who never lies. A God who cannot lie. A God who has always spoken the truth to you. A God who has always acted in truth and love on your behalf. And you have just now lied to him. The one who sees and knows everything. What a slap in the face that must be to our God. When man lies. We are warned in Revelation chapter 20, 21 verse 8. It talks about. A number of individuals who have their part in the second death. The lake, the birds, the fire, and they're describing hell. And in that list are liars. Liars will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What they will receive as their reward is they will have their part in hell. That's how serious it is. And we lie. We're not just lying to some other person here. That's bad enough. And when we lie, we're lying to God. And it hurts him. In conclusion, I think that's one reason why the Apostle Paul, as we think about all these different examples of the Scripture 
unveiling to us the impact of our sins on our God, on our Creator, on our Father. I think that's one reason why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, admonish us with these words. Do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Christians are sealed. And what are we sealed for? What are we, you know, what, why are we marked by God or marked of God? I mean, what are we sealed for? We're sealed for the day of redemption with a living hope. A living hope that is going to be revealed one day on the last day when the Lord comes back. And when that day comes, those who are sealed, those who are God's children, those who are in Christ, they're going to receive their crowns of life. We've been sealed. And Paul's admonishment here is to motivate us not to mess it up. It is to motivate us not to come short of that promise. It's a sure promise. God is faithful. You have reservation in heaven. And it's not going to fade away. But Paul says to Christians, then and still now, because God's word is the living sword of the spirit. And so these words are to us as much as it was to them, our brethren of long ago, when he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve God. Don't grieve your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sin causes emotional pain. It hurts our Father. It hurts our Lord and Savior. It hurts the Holy Spirit. And all the sins, it's interesting, when you think about chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians, before this verse and after this verse, there's a number of sins that are addressed. And all the sins that are described in these two chapters grieve God. And so whether you're talking about the immorality and impurity and greed of chapter 5, or maybe you're looking at and considering you know, the, the, the points of lying and anger and stealing, chapter 4, or bitterness and wrath, and it doesn't matter what it is. All these sins and things, sins like these, such as Galatians, you know, pens, Paul writes there, when he talks about the, the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, and things like these, such things as these, you know, all of this grieves God. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve your king. Don't grieve your father. Imagine being betrayed with a kiss. Imagine 
seeing one of your closest friends denying Sin is a betrayal. Sin is a denial. Even if it's just for a moment. In the moment. It really hurts. It impacts God. And so we need to understand that God, God is not so far removed. He's not so far away just because He's such an awesome God above. That does not mean he does not feel the sting. That he does not feel the pain of every sin committed by every soul that has ever lived. He feels it. What we need to understand is sin is warring against God. And what sin, which is a device, is a tool, is a weapon, an instrument of the devil... What sin is doing, sin is trying to rob God. Rob Him of everyone who bears His likeness in His image. To kidnap His children, whom He created, and whom He sustains, and whom He's willing to redeem from their sins. How? Through Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel is the fact that wretched sinners, and such we are in sin. In sin, we're a wretch. But wretched sinners can overcome. That's power. We don't do it by ourselves. Wretched sinners can defeat sin. That's power. But we don't do it by ourselves. It's done through the gift of our Father. And the gift is His Son. And what He asks of us is that we believe in Him. That we believe in despise him, not grieve him, not treat him in an unholy way, but to believe, truly believe in him, and have a faith that is willing to confess that with your mouth before others that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of the sin you have committed. We've all committed sin. Everyone who is of accountable age has committed sin in one way or another. We've all committed it, and we've got to face it for what it is. We can't ignore it. We can't bear it, you know, kind of brush it under the rug and, and say, well, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not okay. Sin is never okay. But God is willing to forgive. As much as we hurt Him with our sins, God's not forgiving. I welcome you more. If you simply confess your faith, repent of your sins, and be baptized into Jesus Christ, my Son, I'll wash away your sins. Amen.
Please come now. We stand and sing the song. Please select it.